If you have your Bibles, let's open up to the Gospel of John. The Gospel of John. When I was in seminary, one of my professors, um, who's a friend now, um, Gary Tuck, Dr. Gary Tuck at Western Seminary um, up in Portland, but I did my work in San Jose, and Gary was there, and he was a good friend, and I remember when we were going through the Gospel of John in seminary, he told a story about a Sunday school class that he was teaching at his church, and in the Sunday school class, a woman from the community just came, she was just, she had never been in church before, she had never particularly had any experience with church, but she came to church and she found her way into his Sunday school class, and they were studying through the Gospel of John. And um, Gary, Professor Tuck, what he would do is he would just challenge everyone at the beginning of the class to just read through the Gospel of John from beginning to end in one sitting. It's a great exercise. Any, any book of the Bible that you find yourself studying, we, you know, it's not like when John wrote this, he's like, okay, we're just going to do the first 18 verses and then next week we'll do the rest. Like, that's not how these things happen, right? It would just sit through and either to hear it, hear it read, or to read it yourself in one sitting. And this woman who had no experience in the church, no relationship with Jesus, no experience with the God of the Bible, she found herself reading the Gospel of John. And as she reported back to Dr. Tuck the next week, she read through, and she closed her Bible, and she was a single mom, but she called her daughter into the room, her teenage daughter, and she just said, I just want you to know, I think I've been a little bit derelict in being your mom and even being a spiritual guide, but I just want you to know, remember, this woman had no experience in church, no relationship with Jesus, but she told her daughter, I just want you to know Jesus is God, and you would do well to give your life to him and follow him for the rest of your life. No, no discipleship, no, no warning, no one cued her up, no one gave her like a tract or anything. She just read the Gospel of John. And there is this tradition, there's this interesting thing about the Gospel of John. It has this kind of, this, 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 uh, this history this reputation for just being a book that can stand on its own. Maybe even if you have come to faith in Jesus, maybe somebody gave you a copy of the Gospel of John and just read it. And I would just say one of the best things you could ever do for someone is just to say, hey, if you're interested in Jesus, just read the Gospel of John. With no coaching, no discipling, no one telling you what to say. The gospel of John speaks on its own. And you're like, well, why are you then giving sermons, Pastor Craig? Because I, and ultimately, I'll tell you this. Look, if all you do is read the gospel of John every week from start to finish, once, like once a week, look, that's good. I'll even give you permission not to listen. Like, just let that sink in. There's something special about the gospel of John. It speaks in a way, and I, again, there's no... The Bible is the Bible. There's no canon within a canon, but there is something special and unique about the book of John. It is a profound literary composition. And one of the things, a couple of things about this, because we're going to be going through the, the gospel of John in the coming weeks, really as we go through the fall, we get into spring, it'll probably take us all the way to Easter. So we're going to be hearing a lot from the Gospel of John. A couple things just about the reputation of the Gospel of John. How many of you guys have read through or studied through the Gospel of John before in your life? 
I would imagine if you've been part of church for any amount of time, you know so many of the verses. For God so loved the world that He gave His one and only Son. Whoever should believe in Him should not perish but have eternal life. John 3.16, field goal, right? We'll probably see it this, when, you look, when you watch football today. Somebody will hold up a John 3.16 sign as, the, as it goes through the uprights. There's an accessibility to this book. There's a profoundness to this book. I think one thing um, that, that is really interesting about the Gospel of John is John, it's a literary composition. He will use uh, a lot of the devices, literary devices. He'll use the same word with double meanings. We'll even see that today as we look through this. One of the things I love about the Gospel of John is the Gospel of John is maybe the one gospel, and among other writers in the New Testament, John will use irony and sarcasm more than any other writer. And as sarcasm as my spiritual gift, I feel like John, I'm, I'm, I, I have a connection with John. There's something, about, there's something about John when he like, he tells the story of the man born blind and Jesus heals him, um, but he makes him go down and wash and the people are questioning him and it's like, hey, where is the guy who healed you? And the guy's like, I don't know, I was blind. Like there's a beauty in the, in the sarcasm that comes out of that. Um, John has been called the spiritual gospel but it is also so deeply rooted in first century Jewish practices and the land of Palestine. But it's also written to the Greco-Roman world, the pagans. John is in Ephesus when he writes this, and so he's remembering back to the days of Jesus when he's in Israel in the Jewish land of Palestine, but he's also living in this pagan culture in Ephesus when he writes it. And so we have this really interesting mix of the Jewishness of Jesus, but also how Jesus makes a difference to a world that has gone paganly wrong. And so as we look at the Gospel of John, we want to be aware of just really the uniqueness of it. And I'm giving you a little bit of a, of, of a, a primer on John, but we're going to have a chance every week to look at how John sees Jesus as the Word made flesh coming into this world, light and life to our world. All right, a little bit more about just how unique John. Are you guys with me here? I feel like I'm like preaching myself. I'm like wake myself up, a little sip of coffee maybe, something like that. John's unique, okay? If you guys know the Bible, you know that there's four Gospels, right? You got Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Um, Ma uh, John is unique among the four, and here's a few ways that John is unique. The first three Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, are very similar. Um, what they, though they have their differences, they follow, really, they follow a very similar timeline, and they tell many of the same stories. You'll, oftentimes, if you're reading through your Bible, you're like, didn't I just read this like last week? You're, if you're reading through Matthew, Mark, and Luke, they're what are called the synoptic Gospels. And if you've taken a class on the Gospels, th those first three synoptic, they're seen together in many ways. They have their, each has their own uniquenesses, like for example, Matthew has longer sermons than any of the four Gospels. There are five main sermons. Mark focuses primarily on miracles. Most of the miracles come out of the, the Gospel of Mark. And Luke, Luke has, what's, what is Luke known for, anybody? Parables. Luke tells more parables than any of the other Gospels, and some of that, that don't occur anywhere else. 
Um, but they're similar enough that they're oftentimes referred to as the synoptic gospels. And most scholars believe that those three gospels draw on very similar traditions. So they repeat each other. John, 90% of John is unique. That is, 90% of the gospel of John you can only find in the gospel of John. Mark, in many ways, is contained in Luke and Matthew, although each of them have their own emphases, right? But John is unique in that it is most of the gospel is unique to itself. John was probably familiar with the other gospel writers, but rather than simply repeat, he intends to add what I would call supplemental information. John probably is written later than the other three, very likely. Some people argue for an earlier date for John, but probably John is familiar with the synoptic traditions and these stories, but he's thinking, I'm, it's late in my life, and there's a lot of information about Jesus that people don't know or understand. I'm going to add this to what people already know, and I'm going to supplement that tradition. And that's probably what we get about John. Some things not covered by the others, John now intends to cover. Here's a couple of examples, okay? When it comes to the Last Supper, the last, you guys know the Last Supper, right? Okay, the words of institution, what we call the words of institution, when Jesus breaks bread, he took bread, he broke it, and he said, this is my body broken for you, take and eat. Or he says, this is my blood poured out, of the covenant poured out for you. Those are what are called the words of institution. Matthew, Mark, and Luke all record the words of institution. John does not. But John does record information at the Last Supper that are not recorded by Matthew, Mark, and Luke. For example, the seating arrangement. Also, that the fact that Jesus washed his disciples' feet. Not in any of the synoptics, only in John. No extra charge for that this morning, okay? Also, um, when it comes to the last night... Oh, how about this? Miracles. When it comes to miracles, John only records seven. By the way, seven is an important number in the Gospel of John. John also writes the book of Revelation. That book is brought to you by the number seven, okay? Seven is a very important number. It's a number of completion. How many miracles are recorded by John? Matthew records 15. Mark records 18. Luke records 20. John records seven. Seven miracles. And of those seven miracles, three of them are recorded in other gospels, the feeding of the 5,000, uh, the, the, the healing of the official servant, and walking on water. But four of them are not recorded in any of the other Gospels. They're unique, turning water to wine only in John. The healing of the invalid at the pool of Bethesda, we've been there, only in John. The healing of the man born blind that goes down the pool of Siloam, we've been there. Walked 1,500 meters through a 3,000-year-old tunnel to get there, pretty awesome, we've been there. Only in John. The raising of Lazarus, don't look in Matthew, Mark, or Luke for the raising of Lazarus. That's only in John. On the last night of Jesus' life, John records a four-chapter download of Jesus' teaching. Four chapters, 14, 15, 16, 17, of just Jesus talking about his relationship to the Father, the coming Holy Spirit. It's only in the Gospel of John. I think particularly significant and um, chronicled on, the, on your um, worship, uh, what do we call this? The bulletin, the worship folder. 
Um, this is a picture of the Sea of Galilee at a place called Tabga, which is where Peter is reinstated. Do you love me? Yes, Lord, you know I love you. That's only recorded in the Gospel of John. Picture right here. We've been there. Okay. I, how many times am I going to say this in this sermon series? Like, we've been there. Okay. Okay. You guys get the idea. All right. So all this to say, all, John is unique. John is unique, and John is going to record unique information that might not come from Matthew, Mark, or Luke. John is trying to supplement what is already known about Jesus in his day, but John feels like now late in life, there are things about Jesus that he wants people to know about. And I think as we understand, as people, as we get older, and maybe as we realize, like the woman who read the Gospel of John and told her daughter, as we get older, we realize there are things I want my children to know And before I pass on, I want to get these things out into the world. That's in a lot of ways what we get in the Gospel of John. So if you have your Bible, let's open up to John chapter 1 and let's walk through a little bit of what is known as the prologue to the Gospel of John. You guys with me this morning? I'm feeling it. I feel like I've got enough energy to go for at least another five minutes. I know I'll take an afternoon nap today. I'm just wondering if I'm going to wake up. You know what I'm saying? This is the way jet lag works. It just lands on you. Okay. Um, so when you, write, when you write the story of Jesus, the gospel of Jesus, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, they, and John, they all take up this idea about, I'm going to tell the story of what God has done in the person of Jesus. The first thing you have to ask is, where do you begin? So for Mark, Mark says, hey, the place where this all started is with John the Baptist. And so Mark begins with John the Baptist. Matthew and Luke say, no, 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 we're going to go back further. What do they do? They go back to the birth. And so you have Matthew telling the story from the perspective of Joseph primarily. Luke tells the story from the perspective of Mary particularly. But John, first of all, like if you want the Christmas story, don't open up to Mark and don't open up to John. (laughs) John doesn't have a a birth narrative. He doesn't have a genealogy. Like, for example, Matthew and Luke, they give you a genealogy. Jesus came from so-and-so and so-and-so and and -and so-and-so. In John, you don't begin with that. What do you get? John's like, no, we're not just going to start with John the Baptist, although I'm going to talk about John the Baptist, and we're not just going to talk about the birth of Jesus, although I will say that the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. Where where do we need to go? If you really want to go back to the beginning, we got to go back to in the beginning. In the beginning, the very first book of the Bible, which is actually called in the beginning in Hebrew, the book of Genesis, it says this in John 1, John 1, 1, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. For John, John says, look, if we're going to understand who Jesus is, we don't just go to John the Baptist, we don't just go to his birth what we have to do is we have to understand that there were, before Jesus was born, he existed. Yes, he was incarnate, but before that, he was there. And he was, he was pre-existent. So this in the beginning was the word. You've got to go back to Genesis 1.1. The very first words of the gospel are the very first words of the Bible of the book of Genesis. So what was in the beginning? He says, in the beginning was the word. Now, for us, uh, 
This is, this is going to be really the first time, first and only time in the gospel of John where he de- refers to Jesus as the Word. We hear it a lot. Maybe if you've been around for a while, you've heard this idea that Jesus is the Word. What does it mean that he is the Word? Now, if you're Jewish and you're reading this or you're hearing this, when you think of the Word, what you're thinking of is you're thinking about what God has spoken. And that's primarily the Torah, the first five books of the Bible. How do you live? How does a young man keep his way pure? By keeping it according to your word. God has revealed this. It is what God has revealed in terms of salvation, what God has revealed in terms of revelation. It is the Torah, God's self-disclosure in the world. Now, if you're a pagan and you hear this, you might understand that the word, halagos, the word, is this If you're a Stoic and you hear about the Word, what you think is when everything was created, there was an undergirding logic under all of this. The word for the Word is the word logos, halagos, and that's where we get our word logic from. And if you're a Stoic, if you're a pagan, you're thinking of the Word. The Word is this undergirding rationality that undergirds everything that's ever been created. There's a pattern, there's a thoughtfulness to all of creation, to everything, and that is the Word. And so, whether you are Jewish or whether you are pagan, and you hear this, John says, in the beginning was the Word, and it's this double meaning, but he's saying, look, however you understand this, this Word, and of course, John is going to say, this Word, the Word that you're thinking of, it's Jesus. Jesus existed before He was born as God's saving word. We find out later this is about creation or this undergirding value, this undergirding logic to all things, the word. This is Jesus. John's pulling on the elasticity of this term and that the underlying fabric and reason of all things, which is also God's powerful self-expression in creation, revelation, salvation, this is the word and it says this that the word was in the beginning was with god and was god uh, look we i'm not trust me we can go in the weeds and you guys are probably like i wonder if he's going to go in the weeds i'm going to refrain from getting too far in the weeds but there's a lot that's going on here essentially that he's that that john is giving us this sense out of jewish thought jewish thought is look hero israel the lord our god the lord is one there's one god one god monotheism that's, if you're Jewish, you're thinking one God, monotheism. If you're pagan, you're like, there's lots of gods. But John is saying, look, even though I'm Jewish, hero Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one, what John is doing is he's giving us this kind of dynamic sense of like, yes, there is there, the word, this, uh, this pre-existent, self-existent, however we would call it a person. We've de- the church has decided that we don't call it a thing or a form or whatever. We, we say that it, the person of Jesus exists, not only pre-exists, the word was with God in the beginning, but the word was God in the beginning, not just pre-existent. I said I wasn't going in the weeds, but now I am. Pre-existent, but not just pre-existent, self-existent. The attributes of deity that Jesus, the Word, has the attributes of deity before Jesus is ever born incarnate. 
So John says if we're going to understand who Jesus is, we don't just go back to John the Baptist says one is coming, or we don't just go back to the birth that God sent his son. We go back to the beginning, and in the beginning was Jesus, the Word. And yes, as he is, as he is incarnate, as he's come into the world, he is made flesh, and he does make his home with us. But that doesn't explain just the event of seeing Jesus. There's so much more that we need to understand. And John gives, he kind of tips his cap to that early on, even if it's difficult. And just, I mean, you could, the detail that John gives in this passage is significant. That's, I think, one thing about the Gospel of John. It is, there's an accessibility to it, but there's also a depth to it. And if you've ever done any kind of reading in the Gospel of John, what you understand is that, yeah, there's, I can, it can hit me on a surface level, and it's profound even on the surface level, but there's also some depth in here, and if we go deep into this passage, we understand that there's some significant, what we would call Christology, theology, in here. So Jesus is, before he was ever born, he existed. And his existence did not rely on any other thing or being to be created. That Jesus was not created by the Father. In the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, and the Word was God. These are significant. These are significant debates, significant ideas about who Jesus is that the church lands on over the years. And what is the result of this Word? Look at 1-3. All things were made through him. And without him was not anything made that was made. John places Jesus before he was incarnate at the same scene of all cre- of, of Genesis 1 and 2. Jesus is in Genesis 1 and 2. And there is not one thing that does not owe its existence to the word Jesus. Let me just say this again. This is important to us because I think in our world we wonder like, you know, Jesus, wouldn't he be overwhelmed today if he came? Could he, could he use my iPhone? Could he drive my car? Not in Israel. I mean, you, you got to have, I mean, take your life in your own hands. Uh, and that's why you have a good bus driver in Israel and they do weird things with buses. I mean, they put them in spots you never thought they could go. But Jesus, you wonder if Jesus would be overwhelmed by any of this, but hear this. There is not one thing in this universe that does not owe its very existence to Jesus. Not a single thing. This is what John is saying. Like Jesus, John is saying, yeah, we beheld Jesus, and as we reflected on him, as we realized who he was, we realized not a single thing exists without him doing that. There's not a single thing that can say, I don't owe my existence. I don't owe it to Jesus at all. Everything. Not a single thing. And this is where John begins to introduce his various themes in uh, the book. We're going to see a lot of these. We're going to come back to the prologue over and over because he introduces these themes. Like, for example, in 1-4, in him was life, and that life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. I'm going to return to this because these are some of my favorite verses in all of the Bible. 
But the idea of life, he's going to talk about that in 1-4. But he's going to revisit it in chapter 5 when he heals the invalid at the pool. Light is in 1-4. But he's going to reveal it again when he talks to Nicodemus in chapter 3. And then with the man born blind. And ultimately as he's lifted up on the cross, a light is shining. Darkness will not overcome it. He's going to revisit that in chapter 12. The there's this, this theme of being a witness, of testifying. He, we see it in verse 7, but we're also going to see it with John. The idea of truth is going to show up in verse 9 and 14. But then Jesus in chapter, in chapter 14 is going to say, I am the way, the truth, and the life. So we're going to constantly come back to this. The word glory shows up here in 114. But when Jesus is on the cross, he's going to demonstrate the glory. It's this weird thing that in his moment of weakness is the moment of the ultimate glory being revealed. And that Jesus is called the only begotten, or the one and only, the unique revelation of God. In these 18 verses, we're going to come back to them over and over and over, have a chance to hit this when we, when we go through all this. For example, look at 1.6. There was a man sent from God whose name was John, talking about John the Baptist. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but he came to bear witness about the light. Next week, we're going to have a chance to look at John the Baptist and talk about how John the Baptist shows up to testify, to bear witness about what Jesus is going to do, that he is the one who says, he must increase, I must decrease. John was not the light, but he came to testify about the light. Consider also just the word, the word world. Verse 9, the true light which gives light to everyone was coming into the world. In Greek, hakosmos. 1.10, he was in the world and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. And we'll have a chance to unpack that term when we look at one of the most famous verses, for God so loved the world, that world that did not know him. God loved that world, and he loved it in such a way that he would send his son. Even though the world would reject him, even though the world did not know him, he still sent his son to the world. We also hear about the various responses to Jesus. Look at 111. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And what we're going to see in the Gospel of John, and we're going to see this over and over, that there are various ways to encounter the light and respond to the light. Some don't respond. They do not receive him. But others, what are the proper responses to the light? To receive the light. To believe in the light. To allow that light to give you life, to give you new birth. What is a pro- what's a good way to respond to Jesus? To be open to him. To receive him. To trust him. 
to allow him to do a work of formation in us, to allow us to be reborn. This is all throughout the gospel. How will people respond to the light shining in the darkness? And we're going to have a chance to look at those various responses and ask ourselves the question as well. Even at the end of today, I think we're going to have a chance to ask ourselves, like, what about, what about this is resonating with me? And to get to kind of the heart of the matter, look at 114. The Word became flesh. This pre-existent, self-existent, powerful salvation force of creation, redemption, revelation that created all things became flesh. And dwelt among us. In Greek, it's such an interesting word. It says that the Word became flesh and pitched His tent. The Word became flesh and pitched His tent among us. In Hebrew, there's this great word. When you, when you come into a land and you want to make it your own, you want to make it your home, what you do is the, word, the verb is yashav, you dwell. You yashav, you dwell in the land. And what this is saying is that the Word became flesh and He dwelt. He made His home. He planted crops. He made friends. He put his feet up. This was home. One of the great things about being in Israel was also just longing for home, right? You're like, I want my own bed. I want my people, right? You guys ever experienced that? If you're traveling on the road, you're like, look, this is great, and God has put this work in front of me, and that's awesome. That's great. But what I want is I want my people. I want the familiarity of my chair. <laughs> I don't know if you have a chair. Does anybody have a chair in here? You go sit in your chair today. I want, I want, some of you guys are students and you're away from home and you're like, my dorm room's great and my apartment's great, but what I really want is home. Or I want that person who I'm going to make home with. And what John says is the word, what he did was he made his home here. He decided to make his home here. God loved the world in such a way that he sent his son and his son said, I want to simply make my home here. I want, I, I want to be with my people. He wasn't just visiting. I think that's the thing. Sometimes we think, well, Jesus just came to visit, right? He didn't come to just visit. He's on the phone right now. <laughs> right? Jesus didn't just come to visit. He came he came because he was like, I just want to be with my people. The word from the beginning who created everything became flesh and dwelt among us. And the inaccessible glory of God, you guys remember the story about Moses and Moses leading the, the, the people of Israel through the desert and he goes up on the mountain and he's like, Lord, Show me your glory. Show me your glory. You guys remember this story? And God, compassionate and merciful, says, no. I'm not going to show you my glory. <laughs> like, you can't handle it. If I show you my glory, poof, you're gone. You're dead. You're done. So I'll tell you what. You go in there and I'm, you can see me receding, my glory receding. You can see my backside, right? 
It, it's this idiomatic way of saying, as I'm leaving, you can catch a glimpse of my glory. But God says, I really need them to be able to see my glory. So what am I going to do? I'm going to send my son, and the word's going to become flesh and dwell among them, and they are going to behold. They're going to take a long look at it. They're going to consider it. They're going to look. They're going to stare, and they're going to see my glory. We beheld his glory. Glory as of the only begotten from the Father. Full of grace and truth. The inaccessible glory of God is available when we consider and we take a good long look at Jesus. If you want to know what God is like, you consider Jesus. This is what John is saying here. And he goes on in verse 16, For from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, the only God who is at the Father's side. He has made him known. No one has ever seen God. Moses could not see him. But Jesus, the Word made flesh dwelling among us, we can look at and behold and he dwelt among us. And this whole book, 1 through 18. 1 through 18 is the prologue of this book. But it is essentially about how the Word, which was with God in the very beginning, came into the sphere of time, history, and tangibility. How does, how does this, the Word that creates all things outside of time, outside of history, outside of being able to be viewed and touched and perceived. How do we perceive that? And this is about how the Word comes into history, into time, and we are able to touch it. As John will say in 1 John, what we have seen, what we have beheld, what our hands have touched, we will bear witness of. And we, we now are reliant on those who were there to see, to touch, to hear, to feel. And we're relying on their testimony. This is why that's such a significant thing for John because John is like, John's writing this, and this is so interesting because John comes later. John's probably writing this in the 80s or 90s of the first century AD. And there's a lot of people now at that point that are second generation believers. They weren't eyewitnesses. They lived up in Ephesus. They heard the stories about Jesus, but now they've heard about Jesus. They love Jesus, but they've never met Jesus. And John is like, hey, this is for you because I was there. My hands touched him. My eyes saw him. And now what I'm going to do is bear witness because I want you to know what I've experienced. And that's why it's so important, even that, that idea of bearing witness, of giving testimony, that that is what John is doing now. So that we can behold his glory. How the Son of God was sent into the world to become the Jesus of history, so the glory and grace of God might be uniquely and perfect, perfectly disclosed. Let me say that again. 
this whole book, this whole book is about how the Son of God was sent into the world to become the Jesus that we know of history so that the glory and grace of God might be uniquely and perfectly disclosed. Uniquely and perfectly disclosed. When we talk about Jesus, we're talking about Jesus is uniquely revealing who the Father is and perfectly disclosing who the Father is. I am the way, the truth, the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. He is unique. And it's a perfect disclosure of the glory of God. Why, why does John do this? The whole book is about that. Why does he do it? Turn really quickly to the end of the book, chapter 20. I'll give you a couple seconds if you've got your Bibles or your app. Flip through. Chapter 20. Chapter 20, verse 30. Chapter 20, verse 30. This is worth marking because this is what, everything we read in this book, why does John write it? And again, I think what's really interesting about, about what John does here is John says in verse 30 in 20, chapter 20, verse 30, he says, Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples which are not written in this book. John only records seven, right? Only seven. And he says there's a lot of other things that Jesus did that were not written in this book. Verse 31, but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. Not many books of the Bible give us actual purpose statement, but John does. Why am I doing this? Why am I doing this? I wrote all, I could have written a ton more. I could have written a whole bunch more. But these things have been written so that you might believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that believing you might have life. Man, what are we doing here in John? What are we doing here in church? <laughs> right? Like it's Sunday, I'm supposed to go to church. Why? What are we doing here? What are we doing here? And what we're doing here, we might take a page from John's playbook here, and we might simply say, what are we doing here? Um, why are we going to be spending all this time in the Gospel of John? Why are we here worshiping? Look back in 1-4. 1-4 and 1-5. This is it. For me, for me this morning, why am, I, why am I in here? You guys think I'm up here because I'm preaching to you? Look, I do this because I want, I'm on a little bit of a quest in my life. I want to know who God is. Like, for me, like, why have I gone to Israel? Why have I gone a few times already? Like, and, and there are, it's not a pilgrimage. It's not a pilgrimage. It's a study tour. But there's something in me, like, when I was 14 and I heard the gospel, I was like, what must Jesus have been like? What, what must it have been like to be with him? To know him. I mean, who, who is he? And as I think about this, as we look at 1-4, in him was life. And that life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. And i got to be honest with you guys. 
Why am I here? Why am I pastoring this church? Why am I preaching from John? Why are we going to be spending all this time? I will tell you this. I'm just looking for light and life. That's it. Because we live in a world where there's so many, I mean, how much light is out there? How much disclosure is out there? You're going to probably watch football today, and there's so many, how many ads are out there? How many offers of light are there out there? I want light. I just want some, I want something that's true. I want something, I don't, I want something that gives life. There are so many things out there that promise and offer so many things and at the end of the day leave you with death, with being stolen, killed, hatred, destroyed. I want light and I want life and I'm looking. And I believe it can be found in Jesus and I'm with good company. John says, look, All these things have been written so that you might believe and believing you might have life. I want something that's true and that light will come and reveal it. And there's so many claims, there's so many ads, there's so many competing narratives. I want truth. I'm just asking for light. And I'm looking for something that's going to sustain me, that's going to heal me, that's going to allow me to thrive in this world as a human being. Where is life? I want to find life that is resilient to the stealing, hating, killing, and destroying that we see in the world. Something resilient. I want life. Amen is right. And we're here, we're here because we believe that there is light and life in Jesus. That's why we're here. That's why we're looking at the Gospel of John, because we believe if we take a good, long, hard look that's unobstructed by distractions, that we're going to find light and we're going to find life. And it's not just in this book, it's in the spirit that he gives us. It is in the spirit that allows us to interpret the world around us so that we can know what true light is, where true life is found, and then we can go out and bear witness. And we can say, there is light and there is life. And we can dig a well and invite people to come to the water to drink. If anyone is thirsty, let him drink. Light and life. I want a light that shines in the darkness and the darkness will not extinguish it. I want to find a way to walk in that light. To find a strength and resilience in that life that that isn't going to produce an anger and resentment toward the world. I want to find a light that is going to give me the compassion and grace that God the Father gave to a world that does not know him or love him, but he would send his son because God so loved the world. I want to find a light and a life that will nourish me and not turn me against my brother. And I want to know how to respond to that light. 
I want to learn how to respond to that light. I want to learn how to receive Jesus. I want to learn how to have faith and trust in Jesus. I want to open myself up to my Creator. I want to be formed. I want to be reborn. And John says, then read on, brother. And that's why we're in the Gospel of John for the longest time as we are. It's going to be a long time, everybody. Buckle up. It's not going to end soon. We're going to go a long time. But, th- but the promise is that God gives light in Jesus. And that's what we're here for. All right, worship team, come on up. i gotta, I got to cut this one off because it's nap time, everybody, right? It's nap time. Okay. But at, don't, no, no, no. We can applaud for naps. That's great. And for the Lord. Uh, but just as, we, as, we, as Blake kind of leads us in this last song, just take a moment. And yeah, just now, just take a moment. Like, what are you looking for? Like light, life, like just particularly, what is your need right now? What do you need? What do you feel like, God, I'm here, and what I really need is maybe light. I need clarity on something. I need some guidance. I need some direction. And maybe you're here because you just need a little bit of direction. And we just recognize, we just say, God, there is light in Jesus. We ask for that light. We ask for revelation. We ask that you would guide us. Maybe you're here just because you're like, Lord, I need life. Like, I'm sick. I need life. I'm doing things I shouldn't be doing. I need life. I know that there are things that I'm doing that are bringing me death. I need life. And just as we end this time, like just take a moment to open yourself up to Jesus. And just say, Jesus, I'm open. I'm open to light. I'm open to your life. Would you visit me with light and life, Jesus? I want to receive you. I want to believe. I want to be reformed. I want the rebirth of fresh start. Jesus, we love you. And we come expectant to you even now. We pray in your name. Amen.